we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, I rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you. Uh, for the sake of the recording, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. What do you all notice? What's jumping out to you? How does Paul kind of wrap this all up? He speaks to uh, what his hope and aim and prayer is for them, and he wants them to have the same prayer and hope and aim. Yes. And some of those words that he uses, restoration, he uses that word both in 9 and 11. Peace. He, he wants uh, agreement. He wants comfort. He wants love. The, these are the things that he's aiming for. Yeah, Bob. One thing you do not see is uh, his often use of so-and-so preaching. Uh, greetings from hmm. That's true. Yeah. So he doesn't necessarily mention anyone here um, by name, as he often does uh, with some of his letters. Yeah. What else? Mr. Baum? Yes. Introspection. Uh, it's a great way to grab up any thought as we meditate on God and His greatness and His goodness and, and uh, all that He's provided for us. That, uh, how fortunate we are and, and how willing we should be to look in the mirror mm-hmm. and uh, see what kind of people we are and if, if we are living lives that are pleasing to Him. So uh, that's just great encouragement. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more specifically about the nature of that test. Yes? We've, we've talked a lot during this study about Christ being in, our, in us. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Colossians 1, 27, where it says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Mm-hmm. So the only hope of glory is Christ in us. And so I love verse 3, 
He said, since you're seeking proof that Christ speaks in me, he is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. And so Christ, he, he's, you've got, we've got the same thing within us. They have the same thing within Paul, that, that, with, that is within Paul, that Christ in them, just like he did, the mighty power of Christ, they were just not choosing to exercise that power within them. And I think we do the same thing. We forget that we've got Christ living in us, and we forget to exercise that power. Yes, and, and again, we're going to do this kind of upside down. How that power is demonstrated as in us is the opposite of what the world would say. Take it for yourself, make it happen, use your strength and get it done. And that's, that's not at all how, how we, we uh, um, take advantage of, of that power of Christ. But you're absolutely right. We, we need to remind ourselves of that. It's so easy to forget. We think that we're in this thing alone and we've got to get this done and... Um, no, Christ is in us, and, and that should, should fill us with, with hope. Yes, Alan. First of all, you know, all churches could heed this, and, and we could too. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. It, that's sort of his final words there. Yeah. And we need to be that way. It's not an option. We'll get along if they get along with us. It's, we need to aim for restoration and peace and love and live in peace. There's just no other option. Absolutely. In fact, he mentions five things there. It's easy to, to, to miss that first one. Rejoice is his first admonition. But yeah, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the result of those things will be that the God of love and peace will be with you. So... If we don't want that, then we, I guess we don't have to live in peace and comfort one another. But I, I, I think we can all agree, I want the love of God. I want the peace of God. And when we treat each other this way, when we work towards these five very specific aims, um, we know and, and, and are promised uh, these benefits from God. So now we're doing from the end. starting. So let's go ahead and start back at, at verse 1, unless there are any other comments here. So let's talk about what uh, the Corinthians, uh, they were seeking proof that Christ was speaking in Paul. So what kind of proof does he offer? And how does he use this same concept in verses 5 through 7? It's kind of a big question, but he says, Since you're seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me, in verse 3, what's the proof he gives? What's the logic he takes us through? He refers to the weakness and power of Christ. Uh, we, we see that, uh, that as we've already made mention of the, the backwards, upside down uh, kingdom of Christ, it's not all weakness. That, that Christ truly is and he's raised in power, so are we. We are also raised in power. And, he, and here he makes a connection between um, himself and their faith in Christ. Um, if, they, if they are questioning Paul, uh, then they are really questioning their own 
Yes, and we haven't really discussed that much. It is kind of counterintuitive for them that they've, they've been allowing someone to, to demean and attack the reputation of the person who brought them the gospel. So if he's a false teacher, if he's a guy that's trying to manipulate and deceive us, well then, he was the one we received the gospel from. What kind of gospel have we been following? Um, yeah, it is counterintuitive. They're hurting themselves. Uh, by uh, by not believing Paul. Yeah, Bob? Well, he still says elsewhere that uh, you are my elect. You are my epistle. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at the, uh, where he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking to me, uh, well, he's not weak in dealing with you. He's done a lot through you. He's done a lot with you. So you are our proof. Yes, and yeah, he does earlier in this letter uh, point to them as, as proof of his apostleship. They are his letter of recommendation. Um, and he's constantly pointing back to Christ. I'm doing these things because this is how Christ lived. I'm teaching these things because this is what Christ taught. This is what it looks like to follow God. Specifically here, to follow God is to suffer and show what the world would consider to be weakness. In verse 4, it says, He was crucified in weakness. According to the world, that, that's it. You lose. Like, that's not just death. That's humiliation. It doesn't get lower than that. And yet, Christ lives by the power of God. What should have been, by all accounts, the defeat of Christianity was, in fact, the thing that proved God's power the most. And so Paul is saying, For we also are weak in him. From the outside, it looks like I am of no account. And face to face, I'm I'm nothing impressive. On the outside, I'm not even willing to take money from you. On the outside, I've been beaten and shipwrecked, and I look weak and pathetic. And yet, in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. I'm not as weak as you think I am, I'm living out the life of a Christian, suffering for the name of Christ, and in that, I will demonstrate power. Was there another hand? Yes. That passage you call in the Old Testament, that's, that's interesting. He's telling, he uses that to tell him this is the third time. Mm-hmm. This is the third witness that I'm telling you these things. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry we, we skipped over that. Uh, yeah, the, the charge, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That, that was a, a part of the law of Moses. You could not accept an accusation against someone specifically for murder um, without the evidence of two or three witnesses. And he's saying, I, my visits have been your witness. I've been there once. I heard of issues after I left. I went there again, he said. Um, that I warned them while I was there on my second visit. He said he warned them now while absent. So if I come on this third visit, that's my third witness. That's your third witness. And um, he's, he's willing to, um, ready to um, enact discipline there. So in verses 5 through 7... I don't know about you. This is, again, one of those sections I kind of had to read it and again and again because he, he's using a lot of the similar words and it sounds a little circular, kind of like John does in his, in his gospel or in his letters. 
But he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And what was the test that he just got finished talking about? How do we, how do we demonstrate the power of, of Christ? We're willing to suffer. We're willing to look weak. We're willing to, by the world's standards, look pathetic and let God's power be demonstrated in us. So he says, examine yourselves. Is that how you're determining power and authority among you? Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? And then he does this thing in 6 and 7, and I, uh, I'm, I'm interested to know your thoughts. Uh, I was able to get a little bit of clarity um, from our brother Brett, uh, Brent Kirchival. But he basically says, uh, well, let me just read it, not basically. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. That's his objective. That's his goal. That's what he's praying for. That they not do wrong. That they not make these, these mistakes. That they not allow themselves to continue to be um, influenced by these, by these false teachers. He says, not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. He said, I'm ready now on this third trip to come and demonstrate my authority. But I would much prefer that I don't, I don't have to make myself of, of any account. I would much prefer that you all repent and, and, and restore this so that when I come, I don't, I don't have to prove myself. I can continue in some people's eyes to, to seem like I've failed to meet a test. I would rather, he says... Um, that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. He says in verse 9, We are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul's objective was not to prove himself. That's not why he was coming. He would have much preferred to show up and have things taken care of, that his letter would have done the work before he got there, so that he wouldn't have to. Prove himself. And he was, he was leaving it in their court. He was praying that, that they would do what was right um, and that they would be restored. Yeah, Bob. It's really interesting that the things that they are saying he wasn't, you know, they're charging him with that. Right. Are really things that they don't really want him to be. They don't want him to come the way that they said he should. Right. Because that's not going to be good for him. Right. Yeah, we need to be careful what we ask for sometimes, right? Um, uh, yeah, Gary, and then up here. I think Paul is very humbly trying to put things back into perspective for them because the very precepts of the gospel judge not lest you be judged. Take, take a lot out of your own eye before you can try to take the speck out of somebody else's eyes. They are in fault with all of these things. And Paul very gently and humbly kind of puts emphasis back on them and says, hey, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Are you doing what's right? Is your heart right? And so on and so forth to, to make them stop and think about what they're doing with them yeah. and what they're doing with themselves. Yeah. He's... he's He's encouraging them to do with his letter what we all should do with these letters, with all the rest of Scripture. It, it is introspective. 
We're looking at this saying, okay, well, this, this is what love looks like. Am I practicing that? This is what, this is what selfless service means. Am I, am I doing that? This is what the life of a godly person, it, it says it's, it's, it's going to have its challenges. There will be times where we need to suffer. Am I willing to do that? Um, and so he's, he's asking them, look at yourselves. Test yourselves. Put this up against the standard that I've already delivered to you, the standard of Jesus, and see if that's, um, that's where you meet up. Yes. Well, I also think he's referring back to all of the things that right there at the end of chapter 12 that... He said, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And then he goes on with this litany of things that they are um, guilty of, that they found by you the strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disturbance. Then he goes on to these sex impurity, sexual immorality, all of those, that list of things. And then he's coming down here and he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So if Jesus isn't in you, if, if you're displaying all of these things, Jesus certainly isn't in you. You failed the test. And so right. if, you examine, if you're participating in all of this sinful, then you're certainly not displaying the image of Christ at all. And so he, I think he's saying, you fail. If, you, if you're practicing all of this and you're not practicing love and all of the other things, then, then examine yourself, look at yourself, because you failed it. Right. What does the word restoration mean? Mm-hmm. Brad would know this, right? You go into a house and something's broken. You can't build on it or fix it until, until it's been at least restored enough Right? I'm speaking in absolute ignorance. I don't do anything like what you do. <laughs> but you, you, you have to sometimes tear a thing down and, and reinforce it because it's broken. It's worn out. It's not new. And to restore something is to make it at least as good as new. And so the fact that he's telling them that he's desiring that they be restored means that something in their lives is broken. And it needs mending. And the good news is that they've got Christ in them. They just need to take advantage of what, what they have and let God change them, let God restore them. And this is, a prayer, this is a prayer for all of us. What in our lives, maybe that we haven't even noticed, has become worn down over time? And it needs to be mended. It needs to be restored. It is a daily decision. It's a daily decision to lean upon Christ and take advantage of what, what he offers to continue perpetually cr- creating us into something new, something better. Micah? And that touched on what I was going to say, that looking at the entire book as the text um, and, and repentance uh, as being part of that, going back to chapter 7, just having that part of being a new creation that we saw back in chapter 5. And, and asking ourselves, am I unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers? Or am I uh, restrained by my own affections? Um, am I showing that love? Am I forgiving? Am I 
I know through most of this study, we've been, we've been at least I, I have, been putting myself in, in the position of the reader, right? When someone comes to me with these types of admonitions and exhortations, how should I respond? And, and it's absolutely appropriate. We should be doing that. But sometimes we are in the position that Paul found himself in here, where he's recognizing brothers and sisters that need exhortation. Some of them need rebuke. And how does he go about that is a great lesson for us. We've, we've talked about this quite a bit. He does not come guns blazing. <laughs> he does not come and just put them in their place right up at the front. But he is real with them. He's truthful with them. He tells them what they need to hear. But the order in which he does it, he doesn't talk about not sparing them and, and showing his authority until the very last few words of the letter because he's been spending all the rest of it talking about the love and the compassion and the Christ-like attitudes that we need to demonstrate. Uh, he tells them what they need to hear, but he does it just absolutely entrenched with love. Is there another comment? So let's talk about these, <clears throat> these five goals that Paul has for them at the end of this letter. And what their result will be, both in the Christian church and in our own lives. He wants them to rejoice. What does that make us think of? What does that word mean? Just be happy. Just put a smile on. Be happy all the time. I've failed that test. What does it mean? Rejoice. Yes. It's having an attitude that is not dependent on external circumstances. It's dependent on an unchanging God. And so if the apostles, after they get beaten, go out and rejoice that they were able to suffer for the name, the sake of the name, that, that had nothing to do with, in fact, it was, it was contrary to what had just happened to them. It was because they had their eyes fixed on Christ. And they were able to have that attitude regardless of what happened around them. What verse are you reading that in? 
Um, verse 11, at least the ESV, I know there are, thank you for pointing that out, there are different translations of this. The ESV says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Are there other translations of that? Other translations where you read farewell. It just says farewell? That's odd. <laughs> Should have looked at the Greek here. He says, finally, brothers, farewell. Interesting. Well, apparently the commentary that I was reading from was also using the ESV. So, um, but we know that that is a, a, a biblical concept, right? Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, is something that Paul said quite a bit. James talks about it as well. It, he wants them, I, I can hear it in, in Paul's tone, he does not want there to be this sour note here at the end of this letter. He's had to tell him some hard stuff. But he's going to make sure that they understand his desire for them is that they would have uh, God, the God of love and peace with them. And these are the things that, that he knows will bring about that kind of restored relationship. I believe that he wants restoration between himself and them, but he also wants restoration between um, this, this worn down relationship that they, are, that they are straining with their own God. He says, comfort one another. Why would they need comfort? And where have we heard that talked about before? My Bible has the literal Greek translation. And it says, to be restored and be comforted. And the literal is farewell. And put yourselves in order. Put yourselves in order. It's a different mm -hmm. way. Okay. So it's farewell and put yourselves in order. Mm-hmm. Okay. So about about comfort. Why would these brothers and sisters need comforting? So you're referring to that, that individual um, back in, in chapter 2 who had experienced the discipline of the congregation but had repented. And, and praise God for that. But he's reminding them, you need to reaffirm your love for him. You need to comfort him. Don't just let him, okay, we brought him back in and let that kind of injured sheep on its own for a little while. No, you embrace him. You reaffirm your love for him. You forgive him. Because that's, that's what true forgiveness means. That's what, um, what we all, when we find ourselves in that position, we need the comfort and the restoration that, that comes um, when our brothers and sisters forgive us. He says, agree with one another. 
and live in peace. In another place, he says, so much as depends on you, right? Live peaceably with all men. Uh, We know that uh, I can only affect myself. And so the way I talk to people, the way that I interact with people, my aim, and I'm, I'm flawed with it just like we all are, but my aim is that we can live in peace. So I'm going to think of my brothers and sisters and act towards my brothers and sisters in a way that promotes peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are not ones who are, who are trying to stir up strife. And when we recognize that there is strife, maybe we've caused it, maybe it's being caused over here, we're going to try to find a godly way of promoting peace. And it's the God of love and peace that will help bring that about, right? And that's what we all desire. Did you have another comment on that? It also mentions in there aiming for restoration, Mm -hmm. aiming for completion, aiming for perfection. And and all of this peacemaking, being like-minded, it's not going to happen by chance. It's not going to just out of sheer love that, that they are like-minded. It is something that we have to aim for. We talked about back in chapter 5, the importance of making it our aim, whether present or away, to be pleasing God, that, that we must have that aim. And that's something that we talked about even um, at the beginning of the first letter. There were divisions. Mm-hmm. There were separations. Calling them here at the end of the second level. Hey, let's work together. Yeah. And peace, what what he's describing here and the unity he's described in other places is not a just put up with each other. I'm annoyed by you and you're annoyed by me, and we just need to be okay with that. That that's that's not the relationship God wants us to have with each other. He wants true peace. He wants true unity. Um, I look at the end of uh, verse 11, and it says, The God of love is only with you. And I think of like when um, the tabernacle was first. Um, So when God enters the tabernacle and they Well, I just wonder if this is a similar concept. So, to be close with God, to have God among us, these are the things we need to do. And to be comforting, to not just, like you said, not just put up with each other, but strive with each other to be in peace. Both of us be in peace with God. Because that's the real goal. It's not just agree with each other and not just be able to live with each other, but how are we in peace with God? And the closer we get to God, the closer we're going to be to each other. And I think it's not just that, oh, be comfortable and just bear with each other, but like sometimes it's like actively disagreeing and wading through those waters mm-hmm. of this, I don't like this, this is uncomfortable, but we need to do this because we're both trying to get to God. And if we're doing that, then sometimes this is what it takes. Yeah. Is a marriage going to be successful if those two people just put up with each other? 
No, they're certainly not going to be demonstrating love to each other. I love that example. I think someone could correct me. Was it after Korah's rebellion? I can't remember. I think it was after Korah's rebellion, right? Where God told Moses, I am, I am not going to continue to go with you. I'll send my angel, but I will not continue to travel with this people. And Moses begs him and says, well, then I, I won't lead this people. I, I won't go unless you will go with us. And God, God relents. God commands. It is at the end of uh, after Korah where God commands us, uh, specific things to be done to show the people's humility and holiness to make this camp holy again so that God's presence could actually be there. We do see a, another similar heartbreaking scene after Judah is faithless to God for generation after generation. And, and, um, and the prophet is given the, is it Ezekiel, is given the vision where he actually sees God's presence leave the temple and not to return. God can't reside somewhere that is filled with impurity as the temple had become. We are the temple of the living God. And God wants to reside in us. And love and peace comes when he's there with us. But we need to make sure that we are a, a, a temple that's pure, that's clean, that, that can house the presence of our almighty God. Tim, yes. I guess one thing I was thinking about this verse is uh, that it really ties in as well as what he was talking about before with, with stop doing what's wrong, basically. But uh, in this case, he's telling them what to do. Like, if you're going to, you can't just tell somebody to stop doing what's wrong. Right. Thank you. Absolutely. What about the rest of the chapter? Or the rest of the book? If there's something you've just been dying to say about chapter 4 that we totally blew past, I blame it on Micah, but now's your chance. What has this letter done for you? How has it helped? Alan? I knew you were. <laughs> and I'm sure Tommy would love to tell you all about what that is. <laughs> Basically, it's, it's nothing. It, it's very special what it is. It's nothing special what, what the action is. But it's the kiss of reading between Christians and fighting that there are no elite groups existed. They all are equally loved and accepted, not only by God, but by one another. Yes. And we greet each other. You wouldn't do that if you had elite people in society. That they didn't have all the kisses. Here, you greet one another as though you are equal. There's no elite in the body of Christ. You're all equal. Thank you. Yes. And I'm not trying to just dodge the, the whole thing. There, there is a reason he says it. And he doesn't just say it here. He says it numerous other times. In Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Peter. And it is for that purpose. The specifics of it, I don't really know. As far as I could gather, it was not locking lips. 
And even by the second century, rules were being made among the church that it was not to be done with a man and a woman. They were encouraging just men with men and women. But the purpose was not sensual. It was not anything like that. It was to indicate we are the same. There are no divisions here. There's no elitist. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. I affirm you and I greet you and we are one. That's what, that's what this kiss was, was for. Our culture doesn't do that, but some cultures still do. And it is identifying, we, we, I am, I'm glad to see you, I'm greeting you, I'm acknowledging you. Should Christians do that? Should we indicate to each other that we are one, that we are unified? Yes, we should, absolutely. Tony, if you want to do that with a kiss, maybe warn the person before you can just... Yeah, just that whatever form that takes, though, there's something, though, that's beyond just using words, but physical contact with people. Uh, I remember when I lived in Mellon and going months without even more than a handshake with somebody. Mm. You don't realize how much that wears on you. We uh, man, you know, I get a lot of hugs now, and it feels great. Well, I fell asleep on me last night while I was still working, and it's pretty awesome. That, that human contact and that of laying on the hands. I remember someone doing a lesson talking about all the different ways laying, laying mm-hmm. hands on someone. So, with like with Jesus, they laid hands on him because they wanted to grab him out and kill him. But then the, uh, the elders laid hands on like Paul. And or laying hands on someone to preach for the Holy Spirit. To lay hands on someone in peace, in comfort, in love, would be that to like a hug. I'm, I never was a big hugger, but there's a fellow named Keith who really broke me. <laughs> and it's important and it's special. And every time you give me a hug, it's important. Yeah. And you can't do that through hostility. Yeah. You, if you're in disagreement with anybody here, and you try to give them a hug, you figure out whether there's hostility or not pretty quick. But uh, it's hard to have a hug with somebody. For me, it is. And still uh, feel hatred or bitterness or something like that. Yeah. So whatever form that takes, whether it's a holy kiss or it's a hug, or it's a, it's, a, it's a certain type of handshake, or whatever that is. We need to be having that. We need to have that, that bro hug. We need to have the, the fist bump of, of togetherness, the holy fist bump. Yeah. And so we'll start that here. <laughs> In whatever form that needs to take, yeah. that we shouldn't dismiss it as trying for something like that. But it's just like when we sing, that you could just say these words, but there's something that's powerful in being a song. Mm-hmm. And there's something powerful about the human touch that can dispel a lot of animosity. Yeah. And I understand the reasons why we had to do that during COVID. I, I understand. I'm not belittling that. But I, I know what happened to me when I finally got to touch another human being.
And are we, are we showing that kind of affection to, to everyone here? Do we have issues with each other? I know that we do. And your litmus test, would you give that person a hug? Maybe we should. We, <laughs> if I see a whole bunch of hugs after worship tonight, awesome. If you come and give me a hug, I am not going to turn you away. Can we pray for someone that we're upset with? Have you tried? Paul is trying to get them to be to each other what Christ was willing to be to the men who were nailing him to a cross. So surely we can overcome whatever it is that might be causing division here. Yeah, yeah. Praying for Do our, do our prayers sound more like Jonah's prayers to the Ninevites or to Jesus' prayers to those who were crucifying him? What kind of final thoughts do you all have? I think we've got 60 seconds. In verse 9, he says, I'm going along with what Katrina was saying. It's all about being God-focused. Everything has to be. So he's trying to get the Corinthians back in line with God and not because and for the reasons his intent was for what was in mind. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. So if we're all one in Christ, when somebody's weak, the others can pick them up. Even the apostles, when they're weak, mm-hmm. the Corinthians can pick them up and serve them because they got weak often too. Mm-hmm. And so when the Corinthians are weak, Paul, the apostles can serve them and pick them up. So it's so important that we all rally around God together so that we can help one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Micah, any final thoughts? 
I had 42 minutes worth of notes, so clearly I've run out. Uh, I appreciate um, Paul uh, pouring himself out in, in this congregation, as he does with every congregation. Um, and, and you can see that. Um, and it is a worthwhile effort to serve God and serve Absolutely. Thank you so much for the class, you all. I have been blessed, and I hope that you all have well. Uh, and uh, continue to read through this. Um, study it again. Go home, and even though we didn't read it all through together tonight, I, I would encourage you to do that soon. Um, all in one sitting. It takes about 40 minutes. And uh, I think we would all be benefited by that. Thank you.